This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 45, recorded on September 27th, 2021. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah. I'm here with Dr. Keller and Dr. Fawner. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Ah, excellent. Short and sweet. Yeah. Midterms, uh, midterms for you? Uh, it's stressful right now. Let's put it that way. But yeah, this week you, seems to be pretty, pretty insane. But hopefully after this, it calms just a bit. Just well, a it's, bit. it's good to see our students succeeding. You know. That is correct. You guys uh, up in Erie. What was the what was that fire downtown? I saw a bunch of posts. Uh, oh yes, yeah. I guess it was an underground electrical fire. Yeah, power yeah, was out for a yeah. good part of the morning, wasn't it? Oh, it was interesting. The the pictures were really like billowing smoke everywhere. Like, yeah, yeah I didn't even realize insane. it until later in the morning. I started getting you know alerts and seeing stuff on Facebook like news updates. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm uh, glad everyone is okay. All right. What do we have today? We have interesting birthday for you. We have coronavirus updates, a very interesting scientific study about how humans lost their tails. That, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, COVID updates and the brain. And uh, we've got some uh, Fawner's fun physio fact, uh, cancer-related uh, physio fact. And a new case. We have a winner for last episode's case, and we've got an exciting new case. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, uh, subscribe, share if you like our content, uh, and uh, our, you can see our videos on Daily Motion. All right, let's do it. So, Keller, tell us about today's birthday. We have a powerhouse birthday today. Enrico Fermi, born uh, September 29th, 1901, and died November 19th, uh, no, November 28th, 1954. He was an Italian-American physicist who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1938 as one of the chief architects of the nuclear age. At the He's age of 37, by the way. He was, yes, he, he yes, was very young. young. Yes. He was young. And yes, he was. <laughs> Uh, he is considered the archi uh, architect and creator of the world's first nuclear reactor, the Chicago Pile One. In 1933, he developed the theory of beta decay, postulating that the newly discovered neutron decaying to a proton emits an electron in a particle call that he called a neutrino. Uh, he developed the mathematical statistics required to clarify a large class of subatomic phenomenon, discovered neutron-induced radioactivity and, and a lot of other things and directed the first controlled chain reaction involving nuclear fission. So, yeah, huge. Uh, I mean, consider Fathers uh, of the atomic bomb and atomic much. theory yeah. and yeah. let's say yeah. atomic power, which is probably yeah, better. Absolutely. absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, I mean, minus Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think his greatest uh, human contribution is... Yeah, nuclear power for sure. Um, for sure, and you know, not the sole, obviously, but uh, you know, one of the chief architects. There's Oppenheimer and a bunch of oh, other. Oh, of course, scientists. that was a big team, a powerhouse team, though. 
you know, oddly enough, we can thank the Nazis for that. A lot of those uh, scientists in the 30s and 40s in the U.S. Uh, had fled Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, either because they were persecuted because True. they were Jewish uh, or, or you know, because they, uh, you know, we lured them with all sorts of stuff. Uh, Fermi actually left Italy because his wife was Jewish and under Mussolini's uh, uh a, a power trip in in Italy. Uh, his he had to leave, uh, I guess, for the safety of his family. But their loss are gained, for sure. Absolutely, how it usually goes. Yeah. Okay, and uh, he's got a lot of uh, stuff named for him. You know, Fermi react Fermi equations. I look I looked up oh, yeah. things named a after lot. Fermi, and there there's dozens. We're talking reactions, uh, formulas, uh, uh, units. Uh, Google laboratories uh, yeah yeah there's a ton yeah, try google yes google for me and see what you find yeah it's amazing all right so uh keller beautiful picture behind okay. you yep. let's see we've tried to some... balance it without getting too much background but we're what really we looking at these guys right up i, I would not be good at weather i swear again <laughs> there it is right up here so what do you guys see right there I see purple dots and pairs. Mm-hmm. Purple dots and pairs, absolutely. And then, uh, well, this little guy right here, and I, I there's see, another one there, and here. I see cells with weird-looking nucleus. Yeah. So what we're looking at is actually a a patient that had strep pneumo, so pneumonia. And they, uh, they had streptococcus pneumonia, which is the most common cause. And these little guys over here are neutrophils. These are bacteria, or these are uh, responders to bacteria from our um, innate immune response. These are the bacteria over here, the purple guys. And uh, they come in pairs and sometimes little chains, but usually pairs of bacteria. And so they're, they're fighting them off. And this big thing you see right here, that's pink with that little mm-hmm. pink circle, that's an epithelial cell. Mm-hmm. So that. this was a nasal swabs, right? The mm-hmm. nose uh, no, swabs? this no? was a, a sputum sample. So Sputum sample. So someone who had pneumonia coughed up this thing. Yeah. So if you think about it, a sputum is different than snot. It's the best way to put it. Snot comes from your nose. Sputum comes from your lungs, but it's the same stuff. Yeah. It's just where it comes from. So coughed it up and uh, uh, we, took it, it. Yeah. We, we took it in the lab, uh, stained it to see what's in it. And it turns out the uh, patient had bacteria and yep. these cells called neutrophils that chase bacteria to eat them and destroy them. And this patient was put on antibiotics to treat those bacteria. Fantastic. Well, yeah. thank you for that nugget You're of information. You're welcome. All right, let's do a coronavirus update as of yesterday. 233 million cases worldwide, roughly around 4.7 million deaths, uh, 44 million cases in the United in the United States, uh, and uh, 710,000 deaths. In terms of the vaccination effort in the U.S., uh, totally uh, vaccinated with uh, one dose or two doses. We're looking at 63.5%. 
global vaccination effort. We're up to 6 billion doses with a B. Uh, almost 44% of the world's population has received at least one dose. That's counting the United States, obviously. And 2.3% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose. I know we talk about this every time, and we're going to talk about it all the time. This remains to be a problem. There's an issue with rich countries hogging the supply and we're starting to share more of it with the COVAX uh, organization. That's uh, that organization started to uh, distribute uh, vaccines to low-income countries, but still is a supply issue. Yeah. All right. Anything to add to that? No. No. So uh, let me just so 4.7 million. We're looking at about. Uh, Two and a half percent fatality rate, right? Which is that right? Four point seven out of two thirty. Ah, close. A little bit lower, I think. A little lower, but yeah. It, two, but two, even two, so, two. it's still much lower than the we thought at the beginning. Oh yeah, then one then much what lower. we started with for sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it looks like uh, you know people are maybe building up some immunity. We'll see. Sure. All right. This episode's scientific study. This is a cool one. It's it's a bit, you know, cool. uh, a, a little bit outside our wheelhouse. Normally, we tend yeah. to do more medical stuff, but you know, we're we're trying to branch out to uh, all things science, right? So, uh, but this is a cool one. So, uh, and the uh, 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 name of the study is the genetic basis of tail loss evolution in humans and apes. Sounds like a mouthful. I want to caution everyone that uh, uh, I found this on the uh, BioX archive, right? So it's a pre, pre it's a pre peer review uh, article. So it's been sent out for peer review. So as we all know, lots of animals have tails, and uh, lots of these tails are actually also uh, functional. They 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 serve a purpose. All of them. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, for example, uh, a, a, a fish use their tails to swim. Uh, howler monkeys uh, use their tails to grasp onto objects or, uh, you know, uh, swing from trees, yeah. etc. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, like kangaroos fighting. They usually mm -hmm. stand up on their tail. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of amazing. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if you look back at the evolutionary ancestors of humans, you know, we had they had tails as well. But somehow, throughout the process of evolution, hominoid species lost their tails, and hominoids are pretty much humans and apes. And uh, there's a vestigial uh, part that remains. So vestigial meaning, you know, something no longer necessarily useful, right? And lacking a specific function, function anymore. Exactly. Yeah, called the tailbone. The tailbone mm -hmm. or the coccyx. Yeah, and the coccyx is, it's about, what, three to five vertebrae, but they're all kind of fused. And yeah. if you've ever seen in like the anatomy lab or any anatomy lab, um, kind of the pelvis or the kind of sacrum with that little kind of tiny, the tiniest thing it kind of looks creepy yeah. by itself. Yeah. But the coccyx, and if anybody has ever broken have you guys ever like bruised or broken oh, the tailbone no, of the coccyx? Not, no, I have not. I hear that's one of like the it's worst a, it's pains. A, it's not an easy, yeah. 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 So uh, 
the uh, purpose of this study is that, uh, well, when did we kind of lose our tail and why, right? So uh, most monkeys today still have tails, but our ancestors lost their tail roughly around 25 million years ago or so. And uh, to sort of pinpoint uh, the genetic changes that happened between those uh, 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 monkeys that have tails and those that don't. Uh, this study compared mutations between tailless apes and tailed monkeys. And once they actually identified the, the gene that is responsible for the tail, they used CRISPR-Cas, which we've talked about here in the past, right? So it's a it's a sort of genetic chopping uh, method, right? Think of it as sort of scissors, genetic scissors, right? And once they've identified the gene that they they, they thought was responsible for like tail formation in in you know these these species, they use this genetic tool to go in and delete that gene in mice, and lo and behold, they they had uh, mice embryos that that lacked tails or lost all or part of their tail, right? So it turns out uh, a mutation that is shared by both humans and apes uh, and was mice, missing in yes. monkeys. So uh, it, it's roughly around a gene segment, roughly around 300 or so <clears throat> genetic code letters, right? And uh, the gene is called the TBXT gene. And I did some digging into this. It turns out TBXT gene is nothing new. <clears throat> People knew that that gene was responsible for tail formation but they had not identified specifically in humans and apes the sequences. That's why this study is novel, right? They hadn't identified the sequences in the human genome that that, that is missing effectively. And they did that with this study. And uh, so, yeah, so, and, you know, the, the, the fun part for me about the study is that, you know, it, it has the the hallmark of sort of, you know, science thinking about genes, right? So if you're a scientist and you're like, oh, what, I wonder what this gene does, right? And most scientists will uh, go ahead and delete the gene or overexpress the gene and see what happens, right? So they they did that with uh, with mice. They, you know, they, they had found this gene segment, then they went and deleted it in mice using CRISPR-Cas and ta-da, you know, no tails, which, uh, which I thought was was super cool, you know. So, in in some of these deletions, the tail loss wasn't complete tail loss. So that says that okay, something else in influences tail formation is not just that gene product, right? But then you say okay, in in evolution or the way our current understanding of evolution, something persists in a population, a trait persists in a population because it it confers some some benefit, right? It offers a benefit to that species, right? Uh, sort of like the, uh, you know, uh, uh, survival of the fittest, so to speak, you know, that whole like natural selection evolution, blah, 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 right? So then you ask yourself, well, what is it about humans and apes and loss of tail? Why was that beneficial for that ancestor to then pass it on to their offspring and their offspring go ahead and have some sort of benefit. Because if it was detrimental, if tail loss was a bad thing, then that offspring would not survive. And, you know, we wouldn't have that characteristic today. So the fact that it passed on 
meant that it conferred some sort of benefit and so far it's it's uh the advantages of not having a tail is speculative right so Mm -hmm. even in the study they 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 don't know right well keep keep in mind too in the last uh episode we were talking about sickle cell anemia a little bit too Uh not saying this has anything to do with it but maybe there's a payoff right like sickle cell kill you malaria will kill you not saying that there's something there but there's more to it than just is it good or bad for that species? Maybe there's a, a good or bad plus some other factor that yeah. influences yeah. Sure. Sure. that, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe when you're a, a human and you trip on your tail, you get killed faster. So they got rid of their tail. I, silly. Yeah. So, so a, a couple, there might be that- another reason to get rid of it yeah. when you are standing upright and don't need to be hanging from a tree with a prehensile tail. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, you're right. So a couple of theories out there deal with just exactly that, right? So yeah. maybe it's beneficial for a lifestyle that's suited for Earth and not like being up in the canopy, right? So a non-arboreal lifestyle, right? Or maybe uh, it enhances uh, movement uh, without a tail. Maybe, I don't know, it's easier to run or something, right? Or it's easier to be upright than on all fours, right? So mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, the reason we lost our tails, we know it's a mutation. Right. The reason we kept that mutation passed on from generation to generation right now is, is speculative. But uh, I, I thought well, it was a linked cool to another mutation. Yeah, I mean, I we've seen it, that too. The, you know, yeah. genes travel together. Uh-huh. Maybe there uh-huh. was a, a, a more beneficial gene and that travel with it. I'm just saying there's a, there's a lot of genetics here. That, that, is, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I actually hadn't pondered that possibility that uh, uh, this this movement of this gene maybe conferred some uh, some other beneficial gene moved yeah so sometimes you lose a gene or you lose in a species you'll lose a a non-critical function because it's linked with something that is critical that has a better function yeah and they're linked together somehow whether it's just where they are or you know what they do that's cool yeah that's correct yeah. but yeah i thought it was a cool study right yeah i think it's a really cool study all righty then okay so let's switch gears to cool science happening we're gonna take us back to covid a bit so fauna covid and the brain so um this study that recently came out in august uh, preliminary, but a lot of samples, um, a very large scale study looked at brain changes in people who had COVID-19 infections. And it's generating a lot of buzz and a lot of news, kind of innovative results within the neuroscience community, because what they basically did was they looked a at- lot of, uh, A lot of uh, networks picked it up too. I, I yeah. saw CNN story on it, New York Times story on it. Uh, yeah, they're look. It's kind of retrospective in nature because um, they're using an existing database called the UK Biobank that has a lot of brain imaging data from I think over about forty five thousand people in the UK going all the way back seven years, about to two thousand fourteen, and it it's pretty good for the study because it establishes a very good baseline for this brain imaging that uh, this baseline was well before 
the COVID pandemic. I mean, going back to 2014, well before COVID was obviously even existent or a thing. And they looked at this baseline data and then they brought back those individuals who had been diagnosed with COVID-19 for additional brain scans. And they compared these individuals who had experienced COVID-19 infections to participants who didn't. They matched these groups for sex, age, study, location, disease, risk factors, different health variables, et cetera. So it was a very fine-tuned and specific study. And what the team ended up finding was that there were significant differences in the gray matter of the brain. So the gray matter, the nervous tissue of the brain is that part of the neural tissue that is made up of the somas, made up of the cell bodies of neurons. And this is where, so the main key, the the main processing of every neuron cell, basically that's where, that's where processing occur. That's where information processing and information integration occurs you have reductions or losses in gray matter, guess what? Your processing speed, your you know ability to integrate information, to think, it starts to decline. Could this be related to, remember way back, we talked about COVID long haulers and those people who- Brain uh, fog, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Remember the brain fog with COVID? Is, is this related to that? I think this could be related to that. And I think this is also going to be related or have some type of relationship with the fact that those people infected with COVID-19 also experience significant and sometimes long lasting losses of both uh, taste and smell. Right, right, right. So what they essentially what they found was that um, gray matter tissue thickness in different brain regions, the frontal lobe, temporal lobes, et cetera, This thickness was reduced in the COVID-19 infected group compared to those that hadn't experienced COVID-19 and probably one of the other more innovative and actually scary results was that the uh, team also analyzed, uh, basically compared severe illnesses that were brought Mm -hmm. about by the COVID-19 infection and more mild cases of COVID-19 and there was no significant difference with these losses between those two groups. So essentially, regardless of your infection, even if you only got a mild infection and you didn't require, let's say, hospitalization or long-term hospital stay, you still exhibited a loss of brain volume, essentially, is what we're talking about when we talk about reduced thickness of the uh, gray matter. Now, How- again, go ahead. How similar or dissimilar is this to patients with Alzheimer's or dementia? So that's, again, something that is very critical and that's going to require more research is because what you typically see as a hallmark of Alzheimer's research and Alzheimer's cases is the fact that they also exhibit, those patients also exhibit a significant reduction in their sense of smell. And again, but also about reduction in brain, brain size, brain as well, volume. Right? That, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think it's very much the temporal lobe and a specific part of the um, temporal lobe where the hippocampus is located is what also with any research concerning aging and Alzheimer's where eventually, obviously, as you age and get older, especially once you get over 65, 
brain processing speed and cognition begins to decline, not very significantly, but it begins to decline. And you see that exacerbated in Alzheimer's patients. But yeah. again, it, it definitely plays, there's definitely um, a res- data here that need to be kind of investigated a bit more and that need to be uh, further, this hasn't been peer reviewed either. So we do need to say that. Um, thus far at this point, it's still, these data are still waiting a formal peer review, but because of the large sample size and the fact that we basically have pre and post illness data from the same people pre pandemic versus after they were infected with COVID. I mean, this study is critical and I think very, uh, scary and also, um, alarming that these COVID-19 yeah. infections yeah. are affecting the brain, maybe even more so than we thought. Sure. You know, today I read, because I was, I was putting together a lecture for tomorrow morning about COVID-19 affecting the heart. I mean, we're, we're going to find a lot of things because we're looking for them with this virus. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that we're, you know, it's, a, it's at the top of the, uh, of the mind. We're looking for them, but I want to, I want to come back to this. The, the pathology, the pathogenesis behind how COVID-19 causes disease and how Alzheimer causes disease are completely different. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't but, trying to make a connection. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Just let me finish. So, but the outcome is kind of the same. And so yeah. it, it, it led you to think, what, what is that physiological effect? What's that, you know? effect on on the brain having amyloid plaques versus you know having pretty much a cytokine storm i mean we know no matter where COVID's going it's causing a cytokine storm that's what's leaving leading to the the pneumonia to the heart to to the brain problems you know it's a, a lot of a lot of fluid yeah and, yeah right? want, and it's want, but it's different but a similar outcome so it just it really makes me wonder what is the actual effect of these different pathologies to cause similar clinical outcomes. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what sort of uh, immune cells are rushing into the brain. Sure, they shouldn't and, be, and they should not be there. Absolutely, but they should not but with this, uh, you know, I mean, if you've got an SOS signal, everybody's common. Yeah, yeah. Even if they shouldn't be, that's what we're talking about with cytokine storm. It's kind of like everybody gets involved it's like a party and nobody can stop right they just keep making all these cytokines and and it's leading to tissue damage and vascular damage and and yeah the the, the brain information in this case the long-term effect of of this pandemic man we we will not know for 10 20 years and we're gonna have we're gonna have billions uh of people you know i I guess my my point is this too how many people are we talking about that have this versus uh and i was reading about uh you know cardiac symptoms today and you know it's a very small number of people but they're like well you know these people had COVID 19 and i'm thinking well we're looking at it like we're, yeah. we're aware yeah. of it then they list a lot of other bacteria I'm like well, nobody has typhoid fever anymore right, right. Oh. the the interesting part for me to find out and you know more more needs to be done here the interesting part would be to find out if this happens in every covid patient or does it happen yes. in a subset of covid patients and sure. then if if so why right 
Oh, oh yeah, what underlying one. risk factors? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. What are the risk factors? 100%. Yeah, yeah. More needs to be done. Very interesting. Cool, cool, cool. All right, Fauner, we're going to put you on the spot again, uh, back to back with Fauner's fun physio fact. What do we got? We Oh, look at that. So many Fs. Fauner's fun physio fact and fruit fly research. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. So um, kind of another study that looks at a different avenue or different aspect of cancer treatment. And basically one of the unfortunate things about cancer treatment is that any type of therapy or cancer treatment that tries to kill the tumor, or kill a cancerous cell, it's hard to specifically target it for that tumor. You know, when you think about chemotherapy or radiation, you're obviously also harming um, healthy tissue and healthy oh, cells just kills as everything. well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so what a lab uh, at UC Berkeley is looking at doing specifically a lab of molecular and um, cell biology is to look at trying to block or alleviate the effects of certain destructive chemicals that the tumor is sending off into its environment in order to Mm. hopefully increase survival rates and increase the health and outcomes of patients and this is is more is this uh, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, by the way, since the <laughs> veering on immunology here. Mm-hmm. So uh, is this basically targeting the say, tar- targeting like the harmful effects of the tumor rather than killing the tumor itself? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I almost looked at it when I was reading through this as maybe building a cage around the tumor in some way or almost it, like a net it, in it. some way. Okay. And obviously, you need to also find a way to keep that tumor from growing, you know, uh, prevent metastasis, all that stuff. But um, as you guys know, and uh, Keller recently just mentioned something like a cytokine storm, but one of the harmful chemicals that can be released by tumors, and they did this study in... Um, They used both fruit flies and uh, mice, but uh, one of the harmful chemicals that can be released is um, interleukin-6. And they've um, demonstrated that this interleukin-6, one of its effects is to make the blood-brain barrier a little bit more leaky. And when you make this blood-brain barrier more leaky, or if you compromise that blood-brain barrier between the bloodstream and the brain, that can lead to further disease, infection, um, more trauma. Okay. Okay. Basically it's a recipe for disaster. I believe this uh, article that I found called it. So um, normally IL-6 is one of those first like early, early chemical molecules produced by the immune system to Mm -hmm. one of the things it can do among others Mm -hmm. is, you know, cause, epithelial barriers to be leaky, usually not not near the brain, unless you have an infection up there, usually at a local site. Let's say you step on a nail, right? Mm-hmm. And people, you know, breaks the skin and then it gets red and swollen and inflamed. That's, you know, IL-6 may be playing a role there sometimes. And I mean, obviously, as you guys have said in the past, and as you were just getting at, um, IL-6 has vital roles in the body, has yeah, vital yeah, roles usually, in inflammation. Usually, usually good things. But, yeah, yeah, but, but, it, it's not, but the, the thing about the immune response is it doesn't act alone. So I, I didn't, I did not read this paper. 
mm-hmm. it's interesting, but did they look at other inflammatory cytokines like TNF alpha? Well, they do mention that and they have that as a caveat and they do state that because of IL-6, you obviously can't completely block the effects and activities of IL-6 because of its multiple roles in the body. So in order to specifically benefit patients who have cancer, uh, you'd have to come up and create a drug that blocks its specific inflammatory actions at the blood brain barrier. So you have to target it to a Uh specific site. Yes. Oh, that's a, it's going to be a tough it's, one. It's interesting, but, you know, I, I really want to see, because there's a lot of redundancy among the immune response, like, yeah, you know, TNF, IL-1, IL-6, all kind of grouped together to do the same thing to make a potent effect. They're showing one of those cytokines. Uh, and you know, TNF alpha is the main one that goes and, and, and regulates fever, you know, across the blood-brain barrier. I mean, IL-6 does, IL-1, they, they all play a role. And here, you know, when I see one out of the three, anytime, doesn't matter what paper it is, doesn't matter what, what, you know, disease we're looking at. When I see one and not the others being looked at, I, I no, that's that's uh, that that's interesting. Well, still a piece of the puzzle. It's yeah, yeah, still absolutely. something yeah, absolutely. that if you're seeing a large degree of inflammation occurring at the blood-brain barrier, um, I think it's a very, it's going to be a tough hill to climb in order to specifically block those effects at the blood brain barrier. But if such a drug could be developed, I think we could see the same effects that they saw in their research with uh, fruit flies and mice of potentially extending the lifespan and maybe health span of people with cancer in conjunction with other therapies. So if, if, if I understand the data correctly, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, right? They have these, they have these mice, right, or fr- fruit flies as well, right? There, that have tumors. Mm. They've left the tumors alone. They did not necessarily shrink the tumors, right? They let they left the tumors alone, and then mm. they targeted just this one molecule that the yeah. tumor is potentially inducing, and not necessarily secreting itself, but you know, causing the body to secrete, right? And mm-hmm. then with those mice or fruit flies, they saw uh, significant differences in uh, longer health or longer lifestyle or or positive outcomes while even leaving the tumor alone. I believe so, yes. Okay. Okay. No, that's very interesting. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a a cool study. Yeah. Because basically you're saying, I'm going to leave the tumor alone. We're not going to go the whatever chemo or radiation route, or maybe we will at low doses so it doesn't grow more. I think that's the key thing is to try to reduce or depending on if it's a a low degree of cancer, let's say, or depending on where the cancer is located, you potentially avoid the option for those toxic drugs that are usually used to sometimes not successfully reduce and destroy the tumor. I'm just I'm just thinking that maybe I can see a potential use for this in patients with maybe non-curable cancers and you want to give them a good couple months or a good couple of years where they're not super miserable. Mm-hmm. Right? Or or you know or cancers that we don't currently have good treatment modalities for, sure. right? Because there are a couple of cancers now that you can resect, remove, treat, mm-hmm. and then someone has a good sure. 20, 30 years to go, right? 
I, I could see the benefit of this actually in some cancers. But it's not long term. No, no, but no. I could see the benefit for cancers where someone you like, you know what, you've we can extend your six months to twelve months and you know give you or or give you a good six months. You know what I mean? Like I could see I could see that. But you know what? I, I think what we'll find going forward is is this, this research will branch off into new research. Yeah. And maybe we'll find a cocktail. Eventually, there's got to be a cocktail of exactly. different inhibitors that we can use. I mean, you, you know, IL-6, we can't shut it down permanently because, well, then you're going to have a lot of other infections coming up. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, so eventually well, I think we'll, we'll find a, a good balance between these. And this is, this again, underscores in my mind, the importance of basic research that people don't necessarily always see the value for right away. You know, there's People out there well, say, oh, team, I can't believe the government uh, funds uh, research on fruit. Hey, you know, think about this. We, we spent billions of dollars on HIV research. Yeah. And yeah. I'll tell you, when I was going through my PhD, I'm thinking, wow, we're spending lots of money on nothing. Nobody was, there's all of this research. People are presenting it at all these meetings. And now we have, we have compound, we've got drugs that can, help HIV patients live, well, relatively normal lives. At least. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not a death you sentence know? anymore. Absolutely. Not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and, no. and so, you know, the, the payoff is there. Absolutely. This team has been specifically looking at, you know, tumor effects in fruit flies for years now. They actually, yeah. something else that was cool, um, they identified a molecule that um, is released by tumors that actually blocks and inhibits the effects of insulin in the body. Uh-huh. And uh, again, that oh, is because, another because piece they want of the, the sugar. Got it. Because the well, cancer cells want the sugar. And by blocking the effects of insulin on tissues throughout the body, that could provide a possible explanation. Again, it's a piece of the puzzle, but a possible explanation for cachexia, which is tissue wasting, right? And that's, I mean, when you think of cancer and somebody with obviously terminal cancer, uh, cachexia and the general uh, tissue wasting effect of cancer kills about what 20% or so of all cancer patients. So looking at these chemical, looking at these molecules that are being released and trying to find ways to, I don't know, cage the tumor or uh, decrease its specific effects on different tissues of the body. I think it's viable. And I agree with uh, Keller. It's going to involve a cocktail, not just one potential drug or inhibitor, but multiple. So it's, yeah, uh, pretty cool. Yeah. No, it's interesting you bring this uh, study to us now because uh, in the second years right now for the PBL, we're on the cancer block, right? So sure. all, all I've been doing for the last week has been cancer pretty much. <laughs> I've got another week of it too. And um, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just sad to go through these cases because, yeah. you know, patient, you know, does everything and then dies right yeah cool cool uh the other cool part is uh fruit flies get cancer <laughs> yeah right I, I, mean, <laughs> not the ones i have downstairs you know yeah, <laughs> we, I'll, I'll, we had a whole bunch my, my you know my my dad's a, a great gardener brings over he gives me apples and pears and we do our best man he brings a lot of good food yeah, and yeah. we still you know the tomato fruit flies they uh-huh, won't die uh-huh. Gotta give these things cancer, man. And you won't see them again. 
Yeah. All right. We have come. Thank you, Fauna. We have come to our most exciting and final segment of the episode. Uh, All right. Well, uh, our last episode's riddle, uh, according to Dr. Ami Abdullah, was easy, 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 which... Um, he wrote, so it should have been. is good. We were, you know, we, we, no, we like our we, listeners you to know write what? in. It's all fair. We, I tend to get a little bit more tricky because I like we'll to talk about we'll weird things. We'll, we'll throw an easy one. And so we, had a pa- we had a person went camping, drank water from a river, got smelly, nasty, disgusting poop, and a parasite. And our winner is Maricelli, as it should be. I think she already has bling, she told me. So, yeah, I think Fauna already gave her her, gave her uh, yeah, prize. So she was excited. Uh, anyway, uh, Maricelli wins. Um, other other people that wrote in, uh, Rick wrote in and got it right. He's Rick says he's seen a handful of Giardia cases over the summer in his patients. Uh, takes a metronide, is all he says. Uh, Beverly says, too easy. It's a Giardia. <laughs> Tina, Tina says it's Giardia. And Maricelli knows from all the questions that we've written. I, I like the uh, message she sent us. I think I have read this question somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Maricelli actually uh, works at LeCom and she helps us with making exams and uh, she sees exam questions all the time. So I guess... Uh, Hopefully she's, she's not also studi- studi- studying uh, those exam yeah. questions. No GRD, yeah. just exam <laughs> questions. All right. So uh, for this uh, week's question, uh, should be in the middle of the road, Delbert. So we've got a four-year-old boy is treated for a deep puncture wound because he sliced his uh, sliced open his left foot on a pile of scrap metal that was stacked on the ground behind his grandpa's shed. His uh, parents cleaned the wound out and used super glue to seal the wound because, well, they were out of Band-Aids. Mm-hmm. So this they suffocated. This was a real thing, by the way. I'm just telling you. Not on me, but that I've heard about. Uh, two weeks later, the boy complained to his mom that his jaw hurt. So she scheduled a dentist appointment for the following day. And the next day, the boy had severe pain in his neck and his jaw. He could not swallow very well. His muscles in his neck would not not relax. They were really, really tight, right? And so this week's question is, what what infection did he get? So what did he have? And for a bonus point, because that's what we usually give out, is what part of the organism is most important for transmission? So really, we want to know, what is it? That'll get you... That'll get you a, a BioBusters mug, but uh, what else uh, is essential for transmission? Can I ask a clarifying question? It depends. How clarifying Did, is Was it? his jaw so tight that you might say it's locked? You are a cheater. <laughs> All right. Okay. I think <laughs> I know what it is. I think I do too. If you know what it is, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can also uh, message us on Instagram if you follow us over there. And that brings us to the end of our show. 
make sure to check our Instagram page out, subscribe and share our podcast. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, uh, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Daily Motion. And you can find all these links in the show notes. Follow and share. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.